see you today on this beautiful day that the Lord has given us here in San Diego. And what makes it even better is that it's the Lord's Day and we can gather together and worship the King. Back in World War I, 99 years ago this month, in the first year of that bloody war, something very unusual happened on Christmas Eve. You history buffs might be familiar with this, but on Christmas Eve, there was a short truce called between the Germans and the Britons. And so they, they, they had a short truce which enabled them to rest. They were exhausted. They've been living in trenches. They've been, they're rat-infested trenches. And so as this truce was called, there, there was carols that were being sung. The Germans were singing Silent Night in German. Uh, uh, the English were singing uh, the first Noel in response. And it was something very unusual that happened in the course of history. Why do I bring that up? Because Christmas time is a time where even as Colin had just read, peace on earth and goodwill to men. It is a time when everyone is looking for peace. Those of, in our military who are over in Afghanistan right now, do you think that they long for peace? Do you think that they long for for the, the, the war to be over so that they can come home? Of course they do. Or let's zero it in a little closer to those around us in our community who are suffering from the ravages of sin through various diseases, sexually transmitted diseases, drug addiction, and all of that. These people live in agony and they're longing for peace. Well, there's something about Christmas time that's not magical, some of the movies will make it look like, right? But there's something about Christmas time in which even our culture pauses to ponder about the significance of the God-man coming into the world. The significance of this so-called Jesus coming into, wor into the world to bring peace. And so you have hundreds of millions of um, non-Christians sending cards that have scripture verses in it. Isn't that amazing? Now, any other time of the year, they wouldn't do that. Of course, there's more and more of a push for happy holidays and a little, you know, balloons or something like that. But, but it's amazing. Even the world that do not know Christ pauses and acknowledges something in the significance of this event. Christ did not come into this world to add to our comforts. He did not come to, to give a little added assistance and help to you who are already trying to help yourselves by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, He came into the world on a deliverance mission. Kind of like a military mission. Right, Kent? We got a mission. We're going in. We're, we're taking action. We will accomplish this mission and we will return home victorious. That's what Christ did. The Godhead planned to send the Son of God to come and to die for unworthy sinners, to shed His blood, to purchase redemption as we've been studying the past few weeks, and then to conquer the works of the devil by rising from the dead on the third day. The Puritan Thomas Watson put it simply like this. He said, Christ took our flesh upon Him, speaking of the Incarnation, that He might take our sins upon Him. Now, the Puritans are very profound in, like John Owen, a whole page without one period. It's all one sentence, and it just mangles your mind. You've got to read it three times, four times before you get it. But they were also very succinct, succinct 
at times in communicating heavy truth and just a phrase, as Watson did. Why? His incarnation, he had to incarnate himself to become a real man in order for him to take our sins upon him. William Hendrickson, another commentator, says, He did not come to help them to save themselves, nor to induce them to save themselves, nor to enable them to save themselves. He came to actually save them, speaking of his people. Now, the incarnation, that's the theological word for God donning flesh coming into this world. The incarnation is a glorious doctrine. Without it, there could be no payment of sin, as I've been acknowledging already. In order for God to save us, God had to become a man. We needed a sinless man to stand in our place to die for our sins. And because of Adam falling in the Garden of Eden, and all of us grandchildren and granddaughters of Adam, we inherit his nature. And so amongst us, there is no one worthy to take that. And so God, in the wisdom of God, sends the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to come and to perfectly obey God's law for us, which we can never do. Remember, we need his righteousness. So he perfectly obeys the law, fulfilling the covenant of works, but then also taking our punishment upon us. Make no mistake about it. He was a real man. We just finished finished 59 weeks in the Gospel of Mark, and what did we see? He got sleepy. He got hungry. He got tired. He was a real man. But at the same time, he was fully God. He alone could speak to nature and say, peace be still and the storm is calmed. Just as he said, let there be light in creation. Theologians call this the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ in one person. Martin Luther, the mystery of the humanity of Christ is that he sunk himself into our flesh and that is beyond human understanding. So you're not alone. If you're, this, this is hard to fully fathom. It is to fully wrap together around your mind. So the second person of the Godhead descended from heaven into a filthy manger that even though it may have just been clean would still have some rather pungent odor around it. Matthew is very clear in his account, which we're going to look at. Matthew 1 gives that genealogy, right? And the first 17 verses, right? And it gives that, that genealogy all the way, uh, and it shows us that Jesus is David's son. But also, we see that he, indeed, not only is he the rightful heir as David's son, the greater son that would come, but he also is king. And so the title of the message is Worship the King. Jesus is king. He has a kingly office, a priestly office, a prophetic office. Those are the three offices of Christ, our mediator. And here we see him being worshipped. So as we come to Matthew 2 and we consider the magi, the wise men, whatever term that you're familiar with, I want you to consider what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, and yet at Christ's birth we do see some that are very wise and very noble as these men will come. 
Now let's go ahead and read. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. The focus of our attention, we're obviously not going to be able to say everything there is about this. If this was our regular expositions, I would probably take two to three weeks on this chapter. But we're going to sort of give an overview of the first 12 verses going out to maybe verse 16. And, um, but I'm going to read the whole chapter for our benefit, okay? So let's read along together. Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. But when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what had been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, notice, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground, and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And after having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Verse 13, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and he left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother, came to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah, he left in the place of his father Herod's, 
he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the incarnation. We thank you so much for the accounts that we have in your holy word. And we pray, Lord, that even this unique chapter before us here, Lord, that you would give us understanding. Lord, that you would help us to purge worldliness from within our hearts and that we would come as wise people to worship King Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You might ask the question, why is this account of the Magi only in Matthew? Why doesn't Mark mention it? Why doesn't Luke or John mention it? Well, what is Matthew's purpose in writing? Remember we talked about that? He's writing to a what audience? A Jewish audience, and he's seeking to demonstrate that Jesus is king. And what you have here is is you you have two people being named kings in this chapter. And, And so really what you see is there's two responses to the kingship of Christ. It's one of hostility, of maybe even indifference or hostility or denying Christ and pushing Christ away, or it is one of adoration and worship to who he is. Matthew has shown his pedigree through chapter 1 and now chapter 2 demonstrates this. And so, in a very real way, how you respond today to the kingship of Christ reveals the condition of your soul. Okay? So let's go through this. Two simple points. Very simply. I've already alluded to it. First, Christ's enemies respond to the kingship of Jesus with hostility. And we'll consider that first. And then those that respond and praise and adoration and worship. Despite the attempts on the life of Christ, of which we've just read, God preserves by his providence his only son. So let's get the fuller context. Now, perhaps if you receive Christmas cards and you've got several around the house, hanging on a tree or taped to the wall or whatever you do with them on a table, There's probably some, go home and look, to see if you can see some with wise men or kings on them, right? It's pretty common. And despite millions of Christmas cards that show the the wise men bringing gifts to a manger scene, that is not the case. They actually came a substantial time later. Nearly all of, every one of those cards that I've seen always show three. We are never told that there are only three. Right? And that's often because there was three gifts that was given, and so it's, it's, it's being deducted from that. But the events of this chapter, and chapter 2, is, is, could be up to two years later. Why does Herod want to slaughter all the babies up to two years old? Right? It's because some substantial time had passed. Notice also in verse 11, when it says, when they saw the child... Or, or after coming to the house, and they saw the child. Okay, so they're already settled in a house. They're not in the manger still. They're settled in a, in a home right now. Furthermore, the word that is used for babe in Luke two sixteen is brephos in the Greek, but the word that is used here for child, which that brephos means infant or babe, 
And then here, what the word that is used is pedion, right? And so, it's, it, so there's different words used speaking of a small child rather than an infant. The brothers and sisters also, as I said, there's nowhere that it says that they are actual kings, that there were only three, um, but yet tradition, um, you know, the hymn, these three kings, or however that goes, you know. Again, you ha- that's why you have to decipher what you sing and worship and not allow it to color your beliefs, right? It needs to be biblical. Secondly, let's consider Bethlehem. Bethlehem, of course, has a long history to it, commonly called House of Bread, about five to six miles south of Jerusalem, a very fertile land, okay, in which things grew well there. Um, the, of course, Joseph travels, I, I attached in the email yesterday a little map of their journeys, down from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of the census. So that's why they're in Bethlehem when Mary gives birth. And of course, to fulfill prophecy, right? But in, it's in Bethlehem that in Genesis 48, Rachel died. It's in Bethlehem where Ruth and Naomi move back from Moab and they settle in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is known as the city of David, where David's greater son would be born, according to the prophecy, which is quoted, Micah 5.2. Now that begs the question then, in verse 1, who are these magi? <laughs> who are they? What, is, what does it mean? Is, uh, who are they? And where do they come from? It says they come from the east, and that's it. There's some speculation, but there's also some pretty good historical evidence as to who they are. These would have been unusually wise men. Um, even being able to study manuscripts and astrology and, and, and all of this type of stuff, and they had an enormous amount of authority and influence. In some ways, they were like Judaism in that they had a priestly tribe of which that's what these were, and it was hereditary. So sort of like the Levites, right? To be a priest, you had to be in the tribe of Levi. So too with the Magi. They were monotheistic. They worshipped one deity as well. But how did they know to come at this exact time? How, How did they know? By the way, this is probably ancient Babylon, Persia, and that general area, and an extended distance. Um, to the east, maybe even as far as the Orient, we don't know. Well, it was it by divine revelation. Um, it could have been, you remember the people of God in exile in about the 5th, 6th century B.C., you remember that? Well, for 70 years, the Jews are in exile in Babylon. There's no doubt copies of the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies that could have been left behind, and these being the astute, studied men of the day, perhaps maybe discerned from even some of those prophecies. There certainly was a star, and so there's, of course, questions about that. Well, it was a comet. Well, no, around then, Jupiter and some other planet was lined up. It must have been that. Astrological phenomena. We just don't know. It very well could have been, under the, the divine providence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. Do you remember the children of Israel in Exodus? They were led right by the flame at night and the light by day, and it was God's glory that led them, Exodus 13, 14, and 24. But suffice it to say that these men were wise enough to know what? To seek Jesus. Remember, Rob preached a message on Zacchaeus recently, and Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, but all along it's Jesus seeking him. 
And so, but these, these men are seeking to get to Jesus, seeking to see this king. Now, the word is, uh, in the Septuagint at least, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, occurs several times in Daniel. And just turn back to the book of Daniel with me for a moment. I, I wish we had more time to really unpack this a little more, but we're going to go fast. And they're referred to as magicians here. And just like anything, these type of men could be corrupted or be used for good. But in 2.2, he says, Then the king gave orders to call the magicians, that's the word right there, magi, the conjurers, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. It occurs again in verse 2 and verse 27 of this chapter. Um, and then look at 2.48. Now this shows, this is after Daniel's interpreted the dream and so forth. Verse 48, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. So believe it or not, Daniel, by the order of the king, was elevated to the highest place above this group of people. Now, what makes that significant is that it's Daniel who's prophesying that the Son of Man is coming and that God will establish an everlasting kingdom. So it's very interesting that Daniel is called the Supreme One back 7th century B.C., 7th, 8th century, whenever that was. And, and then he's the one that's prophesying so clearly that the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man coming in this everlasting kingdom. Now, as I said, some of them... Um, degenerated, you have in Acts 8 and verse 9, Simon Magus that's there, and in chapter 13, this fellow by the name of Bar-Jesus, where it says in 13.6 in the book of Acts, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, and they found a magician, a Jewish, fa Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, a man of intelligence, this man summoned Barabbas, are Barnabas and Saul, and sought to hear the word of God. Anyway, down further, skipping to verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teachings of the Lord. And then later, of course, he's rebuked and he's exposed and found, found out. So these men who had this title weren't always the wise men like we see here before us. So the inquiry of the Magi quickly alarmed Herod. Herod is king. He's worked hard to become king. He's been king for 33 years, okay, from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. So we know that this is the time stamp is 4 B.C. here. So what does Herod do? He summons the Jewish council. Okay, there's somebody coming, somebody talking about a king. What are they after? What are they talking about? What's going on? And of course, that's the chief priest and the scribes, and they quote the prophecy of Micah. Of course, the religious rulers are very indifferent at this point. They simply quote the verse, but as we saw the last, we just spent 13 weeks in the Passion of Christ, and also as early as Mark 2, that these religious rulers quickly want to stamp Jesus out just as much as Herod does. Just as much hostility. 
Now, why was Herod alarmed? The, the word in the original translated troubled in the New American Standard uh, literally means to be quaking or shaking, uh, literally, but then uh, metaphorically, inward turmoil, disturbed and unsettled. Suffice it to say, Herod was shooken up. There's some that say that secular history says that his armies were out fighting other battles so that he was unprotected. But also, when these men came, remember, we don't know how many there were, but we knew that, know that there were men of, men of prominence. They probably came with an entourage. So it was a large group, like a cavalry coming in. You can picture that. And, and so that's threatening. Who are these people from the east coming into town talking about a new king? <laughs> I'm king, <laughs> right? Of course, Herod was a very ruthless man, man and he hypocritically pretends that tells the Magi, oh, so I too can worship him. Well, after he knew that he was tricked, he is enraged, and he seeks to murder the innocent, which is not a new thing for him. I mean, this is a man that was so wicked that he had his wife murdered, some of his sons murdered, he murdered at will, and so slaughtering the two-year-olds and younger to try to just stamp that out um, is nothing for him. He's threatened by what's going on. Furthermore, Herod, history also tells us that at the time of his death, on his deathbed, he ordered the arrest of several prominent citizens, had them in prison, and said, when I die, I want them killed at the same time so that when the city mourns for them, it'll look like they're mourning for me. I mean, that's how demented this guy's brain was. Well, most say that that was never carried out, but that it is recorded. So the irony is, is if you notice here, that remember when he calls the chief priest and, and they quote Micah 5.2, Herod doesn't say, that's Jewish Old Testament scriptures. I don't buy that. He doesn't say that at all. So Herod believes the scriptures enough to be concerned about this threat, but yet he also thinks that he can thwart God's plan. It's the scriptures of the Old Testament that exalt Jehovah God. What a fool. What a fool. And so Psalm 2 proves to be very fitting, not only for him, but any other ruler, even in our day, that touts about as though they own the world. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, tear us let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Matthew is showing us that Herod is a very temporal king and that there is a king that, is an, that has an everlasting kingdom. We read 2 Samuel, the Davidic covenant, the promise to David that his descendant will remain on the throne forever and ever. And that is fulfilled in Jesus. In Luke 1 and verse 32, it says that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This is something that God is doing. God is establishing. It's not happening by chance. Jesus, all along, is the rightful heir to the throne. So in verse 16, a very grievous verse then when herod saw that he had been tricked by the magi he became very enraged do people act rationally when they're 
extremely angry and enraged? No, <laughs> they don't. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. He doesn't act rashly. What does he say? He sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time, notice that reference again, which he had determined from the Magi. So there's something about discerning about when they first saw the star and, and so forth, discerning the time of this. Senseless slaughter of innocent life. I'm not saying they weren't sinners. Of course, babies are sinners. But innocent life slaughtered. Now, we read this and we're shocked and maybe even a little righteously angry. But yet, do you realize this goes on on a much larger scale today? Think about how many babies have been aborted in America alone in the last 40 years. 50 million? 60 million? And at this time, it's estimated that maybe there were 50 under two in Bethlehem. Well, we've timed that by a million. America needs to repent. The people, the citizens of this country need to mourn at the senseless slaughter of innocent blood. It's remarkable also to consider this text in light of how Moses was preserved. Do you remember that? A very similar thing came from Pharaoh when he commanded the Hebrew midwives to destroy every baby boy, but the mother of Moses hid him in a basket among the reeds along the Nile. And so to here, an angel comes to Joseph and tells him, flee to Egypt to get out of there. God's perseverance. I've already alluded to it, but Herod probably died within months of this event. He died in 4 B.C. This event occurred in 4 B.C. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes the judgment. What an awful judgment Herod will have. Well, that's the hostility. Secondly, and finally, Christ's followers respond to the kingship of Jesus in worship. And, and, and that's what happens here. Look at verse 11, it's, or verse 10, rather. It is beautiful. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, just look at that verse for a moment. Literally, they rejoiced very much with mega joy, to translate the Greek, woodenly. There was a lot of true rejoicing going on here. It's not just, and then they rejoiced. No. it's, It's amazing the way Matthew records this. Exceedingly and with great joy. And you consider that their traveling must have taken several months just to even get this far. The anticipation of finally finding the king and bowing down and worshiping him. And they finally see him and cause for great rejoicing. And then in verse 11, into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell on the ground and worshiped him. A beautiful picture there. Falling in humble uh, uh, submission before him and then worshiping him. These men were surely wise. We would do well to learn from their wisdom. The faith of these prominent men were not 
shattered, coming from a foreign land, coming to probably very lowly circumstances and surroundings, but they lay at his feet these wonderful gifts. And these gifts are all in anticipation and demonstrate faith, anticipation of the victories that would be yet achieved by our Lord and Savior. Let's look at these three, just to taking a few moments on these. The first thing that is mentioned here is that they brought him gifts of gold. <clears throat> gold. Well, gold often is associated with royalty, kingship, that kind of thing. It was very common in a Persian custom that no one would dare approach a king without a gift. And usually that gift was gold. It was called the metal of the kings. And so it was very common when you came to uh, one in authority, a, a king, that you would bring gifts of this nature. Furthermore, uh, discoveries and uh, you know, archeo archaeological discoveries uh, find that there's certain coffins that are just packed with gold. And it's very, it, it's very it, they assume that these were men of, of power and prestige and, and authority that were buried with all that gold. Also, some commentators bring out the idea, well, maybe some of this gold was used to fund the transport down to Egypt. If you open that map, it wasn't as though it was walking you know, from Claremont to Sierra Mesa or something, okay? It was a long distance that they had to go. But secondly, it says frankincense or incense, just to simplify it. So gold focuses on his kingship. Incense is used in priestly worship. It focuses on Christ, priesthood, and his sinless life. It was used in temple worship. It was mixed with meal offerings. It was also used to perfume the priest, and it had a pleasant smell about it. Paul writes to the Philippians, speaking of their generous gift of which Epaphroditus had brought that in 4.18, that it was a fragrant aroma. And presenting the incense, it pointed to Christ as becoming our great high priest. By the way, incense was never mixed with sin offerings. Because I think there's another nuance here to his sinless life. They're bringing frankincense here. It's not something that was mixed with sin offerings. It's something that was mixed with meal offerings. And he had to fulfill every demand of the law, and so he must be without sin. But the last one is probably the most significant. Have you ever received a gift for your child of embalming fluid? That's essentially what myrrh was, right? It was, you remember, we just studied it two weeks ago that Nicodemus and um, they come and they, with a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes at Jesus' burial and pack them and wrap them up in that. And so, it, humanly speaking, it's a very strange gift for a small child to receive this myrrh. It may have even been offensive, but it was a gift of faith, knowing the Old Testament Scripture, Psalm 22, that he would be rejected, Psalm 53, that he had to die, that he stood in our place as a substitute, and a host of other texts that point to Messiah coming with the mission to die. So for us, we must give Jesus reverent, humble worship. We have a picture here of even early on in Matthew of Gentiles coming to worship King Jesus. What a glorious picture that is. 
And that's what the wise men come to do. They demonstrate dependence and submission to the child Jesus. C.H. Virgin said, Let us reverently bow before the holy child whose innocence restores the manhood its ancient glory. And let us pray that he may be formed in us the hope of glory. Well, just think as we come upon Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, just a couple days from now, think of how Christmas is distorted. By the way, we're not at any time commanded to celebrate Christmas. Um, you, you are free to celebrate under Christian liberty in your own home. But I will say, think of how Jesus' person and purpose are often distorted and sought to be destroyed at Christmas time. Certain traditions that blur what the season is all about, supposedly about. Certain red-suited people that are nothing more than an absolute imposter. Santa is not all-knowing and all-seeing. Right? He doesn't know if you've been good or bad. He's not the one that ultimately is so benevolent to give gifts to men. Those are things that are attributed to who? God alone. He alone sees all things. He's omniscient, omnipotent. He can do all things. That is for God. And it is grievous when parents, and I'm sorry if there's some here today, but I have to say it, if you lie to your children about this, it is a very grievous thing. What happens is if you lie about this red-suited character, and, that, and then you're also, on the other hand, trying to teach him about Jesus, you know what happens to Jesus? He becomes real, about as real as Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He's just another fictional character. If you don't make Christ central... We are told that we must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Don't allow the things of the world to cave in and to enter in into your home that would cause you to break the ninth commandment about teaching something about a Santa. I asked Emily to make sure that where she was at, and she goes, no, I learned that a while ago. It was a while ago. And I'll tell you, she didn't know it when she came with us at the age of four, so we quickly undid that. So I would encourage you as well to tell your children the truth. But ask yourself, as we see this glorious picture of worship and adoration from these men that traveled so far, are we true worshipers of King Jesus? Do we give our life our all, as Isaac Watts says in that hymn? To the Lord? Do we have a desire to worship Him in spirit and in truth and in, in sincerity without hypocrisy? Examine yourself today. Ask yourself. Make your life an offering of incense, a sweet-smelling savor unto God. There are some that like to come to church or go to school to add knowledge. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. And in 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, he writes that there are many who, who seeking knowledge but never coming to a true knowledge of the truth. 
We must submit ourselves to the authority of the Holy Scriptures and by faith believe what it teaches and the person that is on every page, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a blessing it is to consider His incarnation even this day. Well, concluding applications, He truly has saved His people by dying on the cross. Last several weeks have been, I think, a good preparation for us coming to this Advent season, if you want to call it that. He was born to die, to put it very plain and simple, so these little hands of an infant and now a small child would grow to become calloused hands from being a hard worker, and ultimately he would be pierced at the wrist as he's nailed to a cross. Those little cute baby feet, when he was an infant, would grow to have calluses on them, no doubt walking so much through a dry, arid climate and sandals, and there would be pierced on the cross. His little head would grow, his hair would grow to have the crown of thorns pressed into it. Brethren, the cross and the empty tomb testify of the fact that God will never leave us or forsake us if we're in Christ. What he has accomplished, it's victorious for all times. And the doctrine of the virgin birth is absolutely essential. It's an essential of the Christian faith. He came to be the second Adam. Where Adam failed, he succeeded. Heidelberg Catechism, question 14, gets this really good. He says, if Jesus had been born of a human we could not believe his full, I'm sorry, had not been born of a human, we could not believe his full humanity. But if his birth were like any other human birth, through the union of a human father and mother, we would question his full divinity. But the virgin birth is necessary to secure both a real human nature and a completely divine nature. Right? Because what was in Mary was from the Holy Spirit. We didn't have the opportunity to sing it today, but we sang it a week or two ago. Hark the herald angels sing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleases man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So I leave you with one question. Are you among His people today? That is, are you truly a child of God today? Salvation is for those who see their need, who admit that they're a sinner, who know that you've broken God's law. Jesus is a glorious Savior. He he did not come. He came for those who are sick. He's the great physician, not those who think they are well by their own good works. We are all contaminated with the disease of sin and need the salvation that only Christ can give. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, for your sakes He became poor, so that through His poverty, you might be made rich. Furthermore, He did not come to simply die for your sin, as great as that is, but He came to break the power of sin in your life. So that now you can sense some victory and growing in sanctification and growing in conformity to Christ. You can't have Jesus as Savior if you will not have Him as Lord. 
You must submit to his lordship. John Piper, and I've read it before as an excellent illustration of this. He says, to take Jesus as the sin forgiver and not the sin destroyer is like a deathly is like being deathly sick with pneumonia and using the precious antibiotic to rub on your skin. The doctor says you're supposed to swallow it. It goes inside of you, but you say, <coughs> I don't care for the taste. Besides, it feels good on the outside. I think it helps. But the medicine is made to fight your disease. You're going to die if you don't take it. But you say, I think it'll work this way. I feel better already. You see the folly of such a thing? <coughs> Brethren, your greatest need is not the new computer, tablet, phone, iPhone, Android phone, TV, uh, whatever, but a living Savior. That is your greatest need this Christmas. The gift of salvation. Don't even have to pull your credit card out to get it. It's free! All who will come to me, I will know wise, turn them away. Come to him. Whosoever will, let him come. Will you come to him today in faith? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thank you for even giving us this opportunity to look into your word. Lord, we thank you that we have a living Christ who's conquered death. We thank you that this baby in the manger grew to be visited in a house by wise men who gave worship and even displayed such incredible faith. And Lord, that you were crucified and died for our sins and you conquered death. We thank you, Lord. Lord, help us to be true worshipers of you. In Jesus' name, amen.